Jensen presents the Keith Lowell Jensen Show with Keith Lowell Jensen. Hello, dear listener. My God, what a week. I'm sitting here on Wednesday night, presidential election, still undecided. It was supposed to be a, a slam dunk, a runaway, and it was not. But hope perseveres. Uh, what's funny is I, I don't want to be particularly political on this podcast, uh, and yet I also feel like saying that um, Trump is a racist trash can isn't p- political. <laughs> it just seems like that encompasses something much bigger. Um, so, yeah, what a strange place to be. Uh, this week we have something different for you, an interview that I recorded earlier uh, with Greg Proops, a fantastic comedian, People know him the most from whose line is it anyway, but he's also uh, known by the kitty set for being the voice of Bob the Builder. And he's uh, known for his podcast, uh, The Smartest Man. Is it in the world or the universe? I really should do my research better. Um, the Punchline is struggling. The Punchline Comedy Club in Sacramento, California is struggling like all entertainment venues to find a way to exist during quarantine. And one thing they've done that I've really enjoyed is they've had us uh, comedians that are on their roster interview other comedians on their roster, you know, us, us local features interviewing the big headliners. And um, I've had a chance to do a few of those, but one that I really enjoyed uh, was talking with with Mr. Greg Proops. I've worked with him several times. Uh, one of the best was I did a whole week with him at the punch and he, me and Johnny Taylor did a podcast back then. And he came out to my friend, Nick, our producer at the time, uh, to his living room and hung out. <laughs> it was super cool. I'm just looking across the table at me while, uh, Greg Proops is getting loaded. Uh, so always very, uh, warm, approachable and uh, a nice guy. So uh, I jumped to the chance to get to interview him. It was a great conversation. We both kind of geek out on a lot of the old school stuff. So we talk about Bob Newhart and we talk about the golden age of San Francisco comedy. So, yeah. And this is the first stand-up comedian who is mostly a stand-up comedian. I also had Andrea Jones Roy on last week, but she was also a, uh, you know, a political scientist and a circus performer. Um, so, yeah, it was neat to, as a stand-up to just talk with another guy that's fully a stand-up. So uh, I hope you enjoy the talk, and um, I hope that you will make an effort to support your local comedy club. Since Punchline set this one up for me, I'm just going to rep them right now. But any local club in your area, I see a lot of them have subscription services where you can watch their Zoom shows they're putting on. Some of them are doing socially distanced comedy shows. Um you know, go order their merch, buy a hoodie, whatever you got to do. We really want these clubs to be there when we come back. And some of the great ones are already gone and it hurts. It, it really hurts. So um, I want I want Punchline to still be around when I uh, am able to go out and perform again. So make sure and support your local comedy club. Enjoy this interview with Greg Proops. And uh, next week, we'll be coming at you with Wendy and Richard Pinney of ElfQuest fame. And uh, have fun listening to me just squee like a little fanboy all over that one. Oh, and one last note. Do please go to Amazon uh, Prime and watch Keith Lowell Jensen. That's me. Not for rehire. That's my latest comedy special. Uh, And it is a special special. I think you'll find it charming and endearing and engaging it's not a normal comedy special it's got a, a narrative through the whole thing it gets a little emotional it's i think very sweet and it's a tribute to uh, a mentor and dear friend of mine uh, mike gribble of spike and mike's festival of animation so go check it out and when you do give it a review and give it some stars and also review our podcast the reviewing stuff that we put out is a really great way to say thank you and it really does help so um and everyone that has reviewed the podcast already and everyone that has reviewed the special thank you so without further ado here's my talk with mr greg proops now live so say at the instagram hello out there in instagram land this is Keith Lowell Jensen, and I am very excited that tonight I will be chatting with the great Greg Proops. Uh, just waiting for Mr. Proops to join us. I see he's here already. And there is Proop Dog. Hello, Greg. How are you? 
Hi, Keith. How are you, pal? I'm doing good. Look, I can hear you and everything. Isn't right? it wonderful Look when the technology works? Right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, you are talking to us from Hollywood, correct? I'm in the Fortress of Prupitude here, uh, located somewhere in Lower <laughs> California. Can you see me? I'm only seeing the bottom of the screen here. So I can see you okay. A little more headroom than we need. Maybe if we could see. That's the way. Because I'm sure you're wearing something awesome. We don't want to lose the shirt. Always. And we actually have a question about that coming up. <laughs> uh, how's the smoke situation down in Hollywood today? The what, the what situation? With the smoke, with the fires. Oh, it's a little better. Uh, okay. It's the first day the phone didn't say um, uh, unhealthy air quality for everybody. How no. is it in SAC? Wonderful. We've had two days in a row now where it's been great. Uh, before awesome. that, it was hide inside horrible. So, yeah. Yeah, that's why. Well, you know, in San Francisco, they had it really bad. Oh, and, um, I, it was unbearable. I've never seen anything like it. No, I talked to some friends in the city, and they were just mortified. And um, here, it was really bad here, but the sky wasn't bright orange. Uh, right. One friend of mine said they woke up and um, thought it was the middle of the night, and then they realized it was daytime. Yeah. Because uh, it was that bad. So it, the air quality has been terrible here, and we haven't been able to go out and walk or anything because, you know, you don't want to get a big... You know, I don't know. It just, it, it's unhealthy to go out in it and kind of run around. And so to, I do errands and stuff, but, you know. And to come in the middle of this pandemic lockdown, uh, we're just <laughs> getting restricted further and Grand further. Slam. Oh, yeah. What's next? I actually, I shouldn't say that question out Don't loud. Say Don't say that. Yeah. Uh, Livia, how, how are you doing with the pandemic lockdown? Uh, how much are you managing to still perform and function as a, as a comedian? Well, that's very kind of you to ask. I'm going to be uh, doing a show, my podcast, I do every week with my wife right here from the Fortress, and that's on gregproofs.com. And then I have a show the 26th with a place called Nowhere Comedy Club. You might have heard of them. I have a show uh, ben, coming up with them as well. They're great. So it's great. And yeah, you get to hear everybody laugh. It's yes. a really awesome atmosphere because it's as close to a club as you're going to get right now. Right. And uh, So that's the 26th. That'll be the smartest man in the world, Proofcast. And then... October 3rd, which is also my 74th birthday, um, we're doing a, a, a Who's Live show with Ryan Stiles, Joel Murray, Jeff Davis. We're finally, six months we've been off the road, and okay. uh, we're finally doing like an improv uh, thingy, masterclass thingy. And you can go to Who's Live anyway or gregproofs.com and find either of those links. And that's That gonna, should be fun. That's a class. Oh, after a fashion. It's going to okay. be, I think, uh, a lot of spritzing. Okay. And uh, a lot of schwitzing and uh, uh, riffing and scenes. Uh, you know, it's going to be a little more experimental, I think, than our stage show, which is a pretty straightforward singing, dancing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a little guy bit. Extravaganza. To those of us that aren't familiar with the stage show, because every time you come to Sacramento with, uh, well, there was, there was Who's Live and then um, uh, did Colin have a show on his own also? Um, yeah, Colin does a show with Brad Sherwood. But um, I, and they, uh, I never get to see any of them because I'm outperforming. How does that compare with working. the TV show? What would we see? You see a lot of the games from the TV show. We okay. do moving bodies. Uh, we do uh, uh, sound effects. Uh, we do games, traditional improv games like freeze tag and whatnot. Um, sentences where the audience writes on a piece of paper. We gather them up and then read you know incorporate them into the scene we do greatest hits um, okay two of us sit on one side and pimp the other two to do greatest hits all based on suggestion way more audience interactive the dynamic yeah. on that ought to be interesting in the future years considering <laughs> all we do is touch the people who come on stage and you know right. it's a pretty intimate show the last show we did uh was in march obviously uh we did one in seattle at the moore theater and that you know seattle was already getting it then it was really wild it was that was march 8th okay uh and uh so i'm just happy that we didn't have a terrible super spreader event from the last gigs we did right I, my last gig was at uh the crow's nest in santa cruz oh i know the crow's nest yeah there were like six people there and i'm gonna say yeah. it was because of the pandemic and we're just gonna oh, leave yeah. that alone okay <laughs> right that's why it was it wasn't my draw so, years ago and i'll make this very brief I was on a, uh, I don't know if the, it's a comedy story from San Francisco. We're, yeah. uh, uh, the people in the Bay Area know that the, uh, the comics of the Bay Area know the Crow's Nest has been a Sunday night gig for like 
since time began. Forever, yeah. And it's not a weekend gig. I think they have a, what do they have, dancing or whatever? on the, But they have on Sunday the comedy. And um, me and Brian Possein, and this is when Brian was an opener. Okay. And that's how long ago this was. Uh, this is 80s, early 90s. And um, and Guy Obelum, who your Sacramento yes. fans will certainly know because he's a very popular comic who's transplanted from San Francisco to Sacramento where he's we, we Lord him. God King weed. Yeah. And uh, so the three of us are driving down to the gig and the topic is broached. Uh, can one perform high? Have you performed high? Is it possible to be good and be high? And I said, <laughs> I, it is. You just have to bear down and, you know, use the marijuana to kind of focus you on the task at hand, which is working. And uh, so we proceeded to get inconceivably high. And it's a long drive from San Francisco <laughs> to Santa Cruz. It's an hour-ish, hour-ish. Right. Over the hill, over the turning on the hill, hill, hill. So we get to the gig, and we're high. And uh, Brian goes up, kills, does his 15 or whatever, 20. And Gaia gets up and goes, hey, everybody. <laughs> conjunction, junction, <laughs> what's that function? And start seeing, uh, you know, uh, what was it? Grammar rock. Right. And I, me and Brian fell on the ground laughing. We fell on the ground because <laughs> he forgot his act and he forgot in the middle of, you know, he just right into a conjunction junction. Was this, this was before he learned to keep a set of juggling balls on him at all times uh, in case he right. forgot his act. <laughs> right. The, it's a tactical one, that because as high as Ngailo is, you're bound to forget your act once in a while. It's good to have those balls to kind of you know, right. rock it all up there. Uh, schoolhouse rock. Uh, so you have done, uh, we've done some shows together with Ngaio yeah. where the audience was very high, where the 420 theme shows and the weed shows. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that because it's, uh, ever, people think, oh, a high audience, great. That's, you know, a treat for a comedian. They'll be so easy. And that's not always the case. That, <laughs> how are those four funny shows for you i uh i the ones we used to do in san francisco for the, i can't remember what they were called can or something they were okay kind of specious the cannabis action network i think they were trying to get marijuana legalized never happened the, no the problem <laughs> with the giant uh tent like uh weed is um you can't by nature say that smoking weed makes you a cool interesting person any more than you can say that Drinking beer makes you a great dancer. Sure. So uh, you kind of end up with lots of people coming to the show, some of whom have a vague notion of why they're there. Others right. simply have a one-note a one uh, understanding of the whole thing. I like to get high. You know. I would meet everybody from the whole you know, panoply of uh, marijuana characters. Some of the people were first about changing legislation and getting laws changed, which is a very good thing. As you know, prison unions are why marijuana offenders are kept in such giant numbers because they right. really help stock out the prison. And then there were people who were simply unbelievably annoying potheads. And um, I, so I always enjoyed doing the gigs. At one gig, I brought a friend of mine who I've known since high school, and he was living in San Francisco at the time. And we, we couldn't buy weed at a dispensary yet. And they gave me what right. I can't even – they gave me what was basically like a – pine cone of weed it was this big it was a branch <laughs> but you know like you remember how shambolic shambolic those things were it wasn't in a bag or nothing you know it was just like here's a fucking branch dude like that was right you know, thank you so you i just smudged the room with weed right right, right. that big <laughs> i turned to my friend and just here and i thought because uh, he loved it he was like really right right <laughs> put it under your put it under your coat <laughs> <laughs> I was so I do not imbibe, and yet I sneak my way onto those shows because I have something to say about weed. But right. often the promoter will be paying people in weed and then uh-huh. trying to skip me. They're like, Oh, you don't smoke, and I'm like, ah, I get paid though, right? <laughs> I mean, I'll I smoke, can... but my friends do, and I'm gonna be say? paid. Thank you very much, uh, right? You want to find a home for that weed, but they think because you're abstemious, yeah, right. <laughs> Sometimes I'd let them do my air. I let them do my airline reservations one year. I flew up from LA to do it, and um, oh, they flew me to Oakland at some weird hour. And, and yeah, then that I got sounds dangerous. Why did I let a marijuana group do my reservation? <laughs> you know, like that does sound like a bad idea. Um, I wanted to go go back in history a little bit. You were talking about Who's Line, 
And biographies uh, online are hilarious because they condense things down. To, to hear the internet tell it, uh, you had uh, Proops and Brakeman was uh, a comedy duo in college. Let me real, yes. real quick aside there. Was that improv sketch? What, what? No, we were just unfunny and young. Nice. Um, My we favorite genre. Jokes, right? We should have called ourselves unfunny and young. <laughs> um, we did song parodies okay. and um, commercial parodies, which were stock and trade in the early 80s. You know, everybody did them. Right. Uh, it's a very late 70s way to do comedy, you know, where you, you do that FM. Anyway, uh, we were energetic. Okay. Ye- years <laughs> later, we were at a at Forest House, uh, Rakeman, that is, and uh, we were pretty drunk. And he found a cassette tape of one of our sets, and we played it. And we were both paralyzed with the knowledge that we waited for no laughs for half an hour. <laughs> it was headlong. headlong. I'm, I'm always impressed when a comedian has the, the guts and the courage to wait anyway. You know, mm, just in case right? the laugh's going to be there. Because you got to. You got to give it a chance. <laughs> well, Bob Hope, who uh, nobody tells jokes in his cadence, but... You know, a classic joke telling, right? Right. Uh, it, it, he always said, let it lay there. And he said yeah. he was doing a gig in Houston uh, in the 20s. And um, the promoter came in and said, hey, Slick, you're from, you know, the city, right? And he's like, yeah. He was from Cleveland, you know. And he goes, um, you're real funny, but, like, you're misunderstanding what's going on. And he's like, what do you mean? And the guy goes, you're going too fast for the crowd. You got to give them a little room. Ah, and he goes, really? And the promoter's like, trust me, you're, I, you're talking too fast. So he said he went back on, dropped the joke, and let it lay for an extra five seconds or whatever. And yeah. bah! And he said, that's where my style became. That's when I decided I was going to do that everywhere. Yeah. And all, because Hope just throws jokes out and then just looks at the car like that. Just waits. Yep. But that's nerve wracking to do. I think it is. I like to fill a vacuum. Right. But as I've, <laughs> as I've gotten older, the places where you take the space, it, you have to think about it like Count Basie or, you know, Sinatra. It's not that they're filling every moment. It's that they fill a moment and then they stop. Right. And then they go back in with a big emotional thing. And I think that's a, be- a really good way to, I've been able to get to a couple bits where you, know, you, you take it down to a whisper. Uh-huh. That's when you know in the club, you know that's the powerful way to. Uh, was it a, a, one of my bits? Uh, you probably seen it. Uh, uh, a woman, a woman dreamt the universe into being, um, and that's why it's called the Big Bang Theory. And this isn't, you know, what would I say? Uh, this isn't just a theory. This is a fact I thought of. And then, <laughs> but you can, you can take things down to a whispery level and then bring them back up to a, a musical level and think of it more in terms of tempo and uh, brightness and having shades. I interviewed Bob Newhart um, a long time ago, probably 20 years ago. Okay. And he was still doing loads of gigs then a year, you know, like 50, 60. Right. And um, I said to him, what happened? I go, I work in the clubs all the time. This is right. Late nineties. I go, I work clubs, colleges, whatnot. Um, we're losing the ability to gradiate jokes. In other words, every joke you say isn't a killer joke meant to slay the crowd. Right. You, you're doing a, one joke this funny, next joke this funny, this funny, this funny, this funny, building, 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 moving on. Uh, not every joke requires the audience to weigh in on whether they agree with it or not. Right, right. Which is something that I really, yay, boo. That. Right. So I said, what happened, Bob, to that ability? But when you started in the early 60s, he was able to really go slow. And he goes, Lano. <laughs> because Leno has everybody one, applaud and or boo every single joke. One, one word it, answer, Leno. It's so funny. But in, in, when he said when Laughing came in, it ruined his, uh, you know, pace. Right. Because his pace was glacial. Yeah. And Laughing was boom, 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 boom. And everything got way faster, you know. I was sure that his stutter was an affectation because it's a gift. His stutter makes you wait for the punchline. He always stutters at exactly the right place. And then I I also got to interview him for a local paper here in Sacramento. 
Uh, and while I'm talking to him, it occurs to me, oh, no, that's just, you know, like a, a runner is born yeah. with a, some good yeah. muscular legs like this guy. Yeah. And who would have known that would be a gift in stand-up? But that stutter, it's, oh, just beautiful. It's like you say, it, it is a gift because the craft – and but he, as you know, you interviewed him. He didn't start out as a stand-up. He was thirty-one when he made the first record. A radio he had guy, no career. Yeah, yeah. He, had, he was a radio guy. He had no career as a stand-up. He just went in and made this album uh, for Warner Brothers or whatever, and Walter Vakey and pushed it along, and they edited it. He said he wanted to go slower. Yeah, I'm not kidding. And uh, that's wild. No, he had he had balls of steel. I asked him at thirty-one, "How come you knew you could do this?" I said, "Did you just think you were funny or what?" He went, "I just thought." I was funny. Nice. I was like, oh yeah, right. Because the material's just, you know. So uh, and button down mind. So, that and Shelley Berman compete for first stand up record, right? Well, and also like Shelley's uh, uh, does the um, the classic uh, one way phone conversation that uh, uh, a comic from the, uh, the the World War One era named Georgie Jessel. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He, he was at the dawn of telephones, right? Right. And he would go, Mama, and Jewish, Mama, it's me, Georgie. Georgie from the money. Right? <laughs> so that was the first joke. So it kills, right? Like, <laughs> right. And then, of course, Ellen did her Godzilla, you know. But Shelley's album is that. Uh, uh, he won a Grammy. They both won Grammys. And okay. I think back-to-back years or quite close to each other. The early 60s was, you know, monologist heaven yeah he describes it uh describes it as a sea change in comedy and right he he named a whole slew of them that kind of just took it somewhere brand uh nichols and may of course nichols and may dick gregory uh, uh i yes. guess with his his style was so conversational and so informed and arch you know yeah um, uh obviously we're not supposed to ever talk about cosby but cosby was a, a, a brilliant comedian a, a, Pivotal, pivotal, like yeah. Thurber. Um, uh, Mortzal. Um, is still going. Uh, yeah. Who I saw year before last year did a gig in Marin at the Throckmorton, which yes. I hope survives this. And he did a gig. He was doing a gig in the front room. Mm-hmm. At, like, Every Thursday o'clock. he was doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So I went into him and I said, uh, hi, you know, we chatted. And then after the show, I came in and I went, how was the gig? And he went, ah, hipster lingo. <laughs> 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 Glad he was able to keep up with your uh, um, he's, uh, terms like you know, gigs. Him, Lenny Bruce, and Winters all started the same year, 1952. Wow, what a year. Yeah, and it's a, talk about your satirists. And um, Winters always, I think, felt he was in that group, you know, because he was doing satire too. He was just doing improv right. satire. So there's the greatest improv comedian. And then the other one's yeah, yeah. Robin, of course. And then Shelley came from improv group. Joan Rivers came from an improv group. You know, a, a lot of comics have done time, and Rick Overton is a, a superb improviser. Yes. You know, I'm not hitting any of the young people, but they can get their own publicity. <laughs> um, the question that I was rounding my way into, and this is exactly how I hoped the interview would go, because I was like, oh, Greg talks enough that I don't really have to worry about him. <laughs> if I start him, oh, I'll fill the time. He'll, he'll fill the time which is, uh, it takes a lot of pressure off me. But I did want to ask that the bio online is like, you performed in an improv troupe, heck, maybe two or three gigs only. And then you get seen by someone from Who's Line. They're putting together this new show and boom, that's it. You're a smashing success. And you never had to struggle and nah, drive five hours to, for a gig. And, uh, right. <laughs> how that really a, happened? A, I went to college at State. It was like 79, 80. Uh, after a week or two, they had a cantina this is San Francisco. Had, you know, yeah, that, uh, that had coffee and cookies and shit like that. And we would all convene there and smoke in those days. You know. And um, I went there and it said improv show Tuesday night. And I was like, what's an improv show? <laughs> I was 19. So I went and I watched him do it. And uh, much like Keenholz, when his parents took him to see Rembrandt for the first time, he thought, I thought to myself, I can do that. So uh, I went the next week and they did an audience spot where they asked for a volunteer, like second or third bit. So I was 19. I sat in the front so that they go, can we get a volunteer before they asked? I was on the stage, right? I'll do it. And we did a, a Mooney. I don't know if people remember what Mooney yes. are for the church of Reverend Sung Young Moon. 
and a wino at a bus station. That was the improv. The next day I was playing pinball, pinball. That's how long ago it was in the student, <laughs> in the student union. And, uh, the cat, uh, a cat named Reed Wallman came up to me and asked me to be in his improv group. Well, I was with Forrest, okay. uh, in and Bregman. Uh, and he later joined the group too, but, uh, that's where I learned to do improv. This is the late seventies. And then we did a couple years in San Francisco called okay. fault line. And Mike McShane was in that group who later went on to be the British shoes line. Right. And then, so now I'm in my late twenties and then I was doing a gig with Tom Kenny, who's SpongeBob SquarePants. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Tom Kenny's a longtime stand-up comedian and so, an old pal of mine. SpongeBob and Boston. Bob the Builder were doing a gig together. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's battle, battle of the guys with glasses who do voiceover. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, he came with that Paul Kozlowski, Dan, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 Bobcat, all those cats from yeah. Boston. And um, we were doing a gig in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and I'm just hating my life, man. <laughs> we were staying in a condo in Spokane, Washington. And we went to, the, we took a little like Ferris wheel ride together. It was just, we, we broke down on the road. We had a fun trip. But anyway. <laughs> We were threatened in Moscow by jocks. You know, it was one of those trips. Right. We looked exactly the same then, except Tom Kenny had rooster hair, and I have Buddy Holly Pompadour. Nice. You know, so he had the that thing going on, and I had the hair. And uh, so the phone rings, and McShane calls me, and he goes, "Where? What's going on?" I'm like, "What?" He's like, "Um, this English TV show is in town doing it. Uh, the auditions for improv, and he and me." him and I had been in an improv group together and worked as a two-hander doing improv in the late eighties in San Francisco for years. And, uh, I'm like, shit, I'm in Coeur d'Alene. And, uh, the next year they came back, thank God. Oh, that was 1989, wow. 88 was the first year that it was on telly in Britain. I joined the TV show. The second year it was on in Britain, 89. So I'm on 31 years. Um, we did it for 10 years in England, shot the last two or three series in LA of that. Then uh, Drew got to be the host and we came over in 99 and did uh, the first pilot or or did summer replacement show of six episodes. Then we did four years on ABC and then seven years ago, the CW picked it up and we've done it on the, we're we're in our seventh season. We did not shoot this year, but we had so much in the can from last year that we could actually get another season. Oh, great. (laughs) So we're, we have new episodes every Monday. I think when I worked with you, uh, you had just started doing the CW and you told me uh, about a funny thing that was happening where they were taking some young heartthrob star and then being like, here, professional improv guys who've done it all your life, uh, dude, have this guy join your games. They have done it. And um, it, it, they, there's been a couple that were really good. What was, I think, not New Kids. I can't remember which boy group it was, but he was a famous <laughs> one and you would have known him. And he was really game bird and he could sing. Good. So when we improvised the song, he could, he had game. Um, my favorite one was Ross from the tonight show. You remember Ross? No. Uh, what's Ross's. He's Ross talks like this and he's Ross Matthews. Ross okay. Matthews. He's a TV personality and he was on, uh, on the tonight show and a bunch of other shows, Chelsea, whatnot. And he's a very, um, uh, enthusiastic gay man. Okay. And w- so they brought him in and I was like, we know each other from Chelsea and lots of stuff. So we're friends and they go, you're having a business meeting at a restaurant. Well, the two of us have no idea what a business meeting is. Right, right. And Ross goes, Ross goes to open the scene. Did you bring the paper thing? <laughs> and I, <laughs> yeah, no, you gotta happy. have the paper thing. <laughs> I was never so happy doing the show as that moment because it was like, this is exactly where I want to be. Right. He doesn't know how, to, you know, he didn't go, I've got an action item. Where does stand-up come in and all that? Oh, so uh, Proops and Brakeman, we did stand-up. Then um, Brakeman moved to Los Angeles. I stayed in San Francisco. Okay. Joined the improv group, as I said, uh, the, for a couple of years. This is fault one. Then after we broke up, because all groups and teams break up, Yes. Uh, comma, comma, down. <laughs> and um, uh, I took it up on my own. Started at square one, which I probably shouldn't have had to do. I probably should have been a feature. Right. Anyway, I did, I did a year or two as an MC everywhere. For, this is a 500-mile driving for $50 gigs. 
so I did my work there and then I was moved up to feature, which as you know, is the sweet spot. Yes. And then, uh, uh, late eighties, early nineties, by then, by the early nineties, I was a, a, a big headliner in San Francisco. Right. I wouldn't say nationwide or anything like that, but I would say in the city, I was pretty well known. And San Francisco and, uh, can be a very distinct flavor. Sometimes I think sometimes San Francisco comedians find out when they leave San Francisco that it, they might harder. have to adjust things. Tone shit down so that people understand. Yeah, what you're talking I don't know about. if I can say that it's harder because the opposite is also true. I've seen people come into San Francisco who kill everywhere else and they, you know, bomb their ass off. So San Francisco crowd is a discerning crowd. Um, uh, I think even more in those days. And uh, uh, I agree with you. The problem always was for comics from the city was. And that's how provincial we are, the city. Yeah, you heard yes. me, the city. What city? Oh, you know, the city. Ding, ding, crabs coming at you. Let me tell you something black, really... Black mayor, gay people, all that shit that makes America <laughs> uneasy. Let me tell you something really sad. Here in Sacramento, we also call it the city. I know you do, because you're Bay Area. Um, Let's be honest. Sacramento is <laughs> the very top end. Of, Lake Tahoe's the Bay Area. Okay, I'll take it. Come on. Again, our self-esteem is low enough that we'll take it. We'll just accept it. <laughs> when you're in when you're in Lake Tahoe, everyone is from the East Bay or Sacramento. Yeah. Am I wrong? No, absolutely. That's who goes there. It's like the Bay Area goes there. They, they drive five hours. You guys drive three hours and we'll go to Tahoe. All right. And then it's so small and there's nothing there and it's just great. So I derailed you. The city. Oh. <laughs> what was I? Oh, the <laughs> no city. Yeah, the, the comics have, uh, I felt... Uh, my good friend Warren Thomas, who was a comic I worshipped, who's passed away and is swirling in the heavens, was really strong on riffing. Like he was really quick. And I felt he used to call Robin um, R. Elvis. Right? Okay, right. Because Robin's style of sub referential, top speed, uh, total re- recall, um, college class, you know, references, right? Mixed with cartoons, impressions, and vaudeville. Right. So, like Lenny Bruce, when he started, did impressions and then and shtick and then worked it into like a hipster thing where he still was able to incorporate all of his funny voices and, right. you know, throw the gun out, what yada yada, warden, you know. So, I think we were all, if he was at the apex of that style, there was also Paula Poundstone, who was yeah. like everybody from San Francisco transplant from Boston. Part of that epic wave, Kevin Meany, Paul Poundstone, all the guys I named before, Bobcat, all from Boston. Uh, Dana Gould, Dana, mm-hmm. Dana Gould, irrevocable genius of Bay Area comedy, like uh, really, truly. But Paula had this, she put her uh, leg under her like this and sit on a stool right. with the microphone like that. And it was just, I could, she went, she, her crowd work was just unparalleled. And I can never decide if she looks exceedingly comfortable on stage or excruciatingly uncomfortable on stage. Right, or wildly uncomfortable. Somewhere in between. <laughs> it's that sweet tension. So the 37 Corbett was a bus that went by the window, the picture window of the other cafe in San Francisco, which was on a little side street off of hate called Carl and Cole. So it was a hippie neighborhood. Excuse me, there was a crappy bar across the street. Excuse me, always. And a grocery store and Cole Street Hardware Well, Tassahara Bakery. So Carl and Cole, like this streetcar, streetcar ran by. Okay. And then the bus came over the hill and it was a bus that no one ever took. Like and there's popular buses, as you know, and then there's buses that are like, what? Right. Like, like Ogden Nash said, the bus is going to Scranton always travel in pairs. <laughs> um, and the 37 Corbett would come over and there'd be nobody in it. The picture window that everyone could see from their seat at the other cafe, because the stage was right in front of it, was the bus stop. So the bus would stop in front of the window. People get out, people get on. And Paula would get on. And then the first five or 10 minutes go, you ever notice? There's never anyone on the 37 Corbett. And then within the body of her headliner set, it, buses come every 30 minutes, right? Right. The 37 Corbett. And it would be empty or there'd be one person. And the crowd, without her even saying anything, the, the bus would just stop and everyone would see it was the 37 and everyone would become hysterical. So and to me, that's this like uh, suggestive, you know, it, it's so... She set it up worked. for the world yeah. to give her a callback. I mean, that's yes. amazing. It, it's just, it was one of my favorite, you know, Jeremy Kramer. There were so many, not crazy comics, but like the left brain aspect right. was there. 
uh, Ron, um, I'm blanking on his last name, Ron with the mustache, Ron Lynch. Okay, yes. Ron, also a transplant. Ron Lynch is like of that school, one of the most brilliant surrealist comedians from San Francisco. He's incredible. That school that, you know, Maria is so, um, Maria's a miniaturist, right? Like Maria's characters are these fully fleshed out pieces of art. This is and Ron Bamford. Lynch does, yeah, Ron right. Lynch does this, uh, like kind of opaque uh, funhouse, you know, cere- cerebral thing where you have to try to understand where you're coming from. It, it, it's challenging, you know? Like, yeah. So I like, that was the atmosphere that I lived in with all those people and, and Margaret Cho later when she was. I love Margaret. A baby comic and Brian Posehn when he was a baby comic and Greg Barrett when he was a baby comic. And, you know, and my, the people who started with my class were, um, uh, Jake Johansson, whatnot, um, and then Marin and Pat Oswalt, right, and right, Patch. So, you know, we had a pretty Liz Winstead who uh, pretty, went on to make the Daily Show, and she's from you know, yeah, from gold, Minnesota, moved to San Francisco. A golden age there in San Francisco. Is this too much? This is like what I sound like, Georgie Jessel now, <laughs> and I'll give you a eulogy <laughs> for a nice price. I this love it. Old fashioned. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the relationship between improv and stand-up because I feel yeah. like the list of people that can do both is very small. Well, and I, I, I hate trying- to say this, but when there's someone who's famous as a comedic actor or as an improviser and they're coming to headline, I usually just assume it's not going to be great. And then there's right. some, some wonderful exceptions. People you named Winters, Robin, and, and I would say yourself. Uh, what is it about those two disciplines? How do they complement each other? How are they different? You have to give yourself over an improv because mm-hmm. you are part of a team and you're more, it's more like being on a basketball team because you're in a short squad. You got to throw the ball. You got to receive the ball. And if the play goes awry, you have no chance to talk about it and make it right. You have to do it right then and there. So that's the duty of an improviser to keep it going on the floor and make sure the audience is still uh, surprised and paying attention. A stand-up comedian, I get to use a scalpel. I get to use a suture, a theatrical mask, an orchestra. The stage is this place where you can make all these things happen. Now, if you're playing a shitty gig to a bunch of fucking drunks and they're (laughs) assholes or gun humpers or something, and they're yelling at you, that's another kind of gig. That's the one we all hate and blah. And people never understand it. They think that's what's supposed to comedy is this big confrontatory it right. Godzilla battle that we're all fighting with ourselves. Well, we got over that a long time ago. The fact that we have glasses and look like and sound like we do has precluded that we spend a lifetime battling against the prevailing horrible Viking tide. <laughs> so what you really want at a comedy show and optimum maximum for all of us as artists, craftspeople, is for the crowd to be attentive Right. For you to be able to lay down what you're talking about and hit all your points. And that's all we ever want to do. And on a good night, hit them and that crowd really reacts. And then you get a little bolder and expound on your point or you right. do something else that you haven't done. Or you maybe even write another minute or two off the back of uh, something you did. Writing yeah. on stage. And those are, the moments, the best. Right? those are the moments when we're like, this is why it's good. This is why. So it's the precision mixed with lately over the last year but always, but mostly a lot lately, um, I've been trying to improvise stories and ideas that I have on stage. And my very good friend, Will Durst, who unfortunately had a stroke last yeah. year and is still recovering from it. Um, his wife, Debbie, and I are the closest of friends. And uh, um, they came to see me last year. And I was telling stories and shit, and I was doing an album. And Will said, you know what, Greg, you're doing something that is the most he was really complimentary. I'm setting myself up for a huge compliment, but I'm trying to tell you that the person who gave me the compliment, I admire so much that it meant the world to me. He said, you, that, you know that phrase, you can make anything funny. He goes, with that story, you were making anything funny. And I was like, that is funny enough to get laughs, funny enough to seem like a routine, which is where we're heading as an artist. You know, like I want to be able to just go to the supermarket and then come home and go, I have visited Dante's fifth circle tonight and it's called the produce section, you know, and, <laughs> right, and right. just, you know, like just be able to do that ninja shit. I mean, I love writing. Yeah. I mean, when I look at a comic, the two things I 
look for are jokes like you're funny. That's very important. Um, and I look for a, a, an attitude of, okay. you know, I, I want to see people pu- at once pushing or whatever it is they're doing with their craft. My favorite type of comedians, you know, are, are bullshit, but I can appreciate even the softest one-liners, you know, like right. I've never been able to do deadpan. I'm terrible at deadpan. I'm good at being loud and I'm good at a bunch of things, being arch and mean and snide and effeminate and all those things. I can do that. <laughs> but being deadpan is difficult. And um, I love comics that can, you know, that, well, anyway. Yes. You know, uh, 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 Todd, um, what? No, I'm looking like an asshole. Uh, Todd, crowd work tour. Yes, Todd. Todd Berry. Thank you. You saved me. Todd Berry's delivery. I think he needs a new name because I always stick on Todd's last name and I love him. Well, I wanted to say Todd Glass, but Todd Glass is the exact opposite of Todd Berry. Right. Yeah, no, Todd Berry's just so dry and understated. It's delightful. Yeah, it is. He really lets it lay there. It's just fantastic. (laughs) Um you mentioned what we sound like and you mentioned effeminate and I wanted to ask you about your voice. And this is actually a personal question for me because I put out my first album and of like five or six reviews that I managed to get, all of them mentioned my voice. Somebody called me a very gay Kermit the Frog. Um, Oh, that's so great. (laughs) You can't ask for that. It took a little bit for me to realize, oh, this is a good thing. This means I have a distinctive voice. It stands out. Was there a moment like that for you? I I mean, because you do. You have a very unique voice. The second you hear Greg Proops, you know it's Greg Proops. But as Bob the Builder proved, you also have the ability to change your voice when you need to. So what was that like to have people respond to that voice on stage? It's a very profound question, Keith, and I mean that because – uh, you know how things are. Fame is this weird sort of, it, you know, amorphous blob that kind of happens. It's it's super random and there's all these conditions to it that you don't control or understand in any way. Right. So like there's people that had kids when I was the voice of Bob the Builder that are like, oh my God, I didn't know who you were. And then you talked and then I knew you were Bob the Builder because I had to listen to that shit for two years, right? Right. There's the time period in the in the toddler when it's a Bob the Builder year. Yes. And that's, so. My daughter was not impressed that I was talking to Greg Proops. She was very <laughs> impressed that I was talking to Bob the Builder. So, yeah. See? So you're from that group. <laughs> and then there's the people who, and I've had this happen to me a lot of time in my life, look at me and go, I thought it was you. And then I heard you say something. Right. And I knew it was you. So what you said before about um, Bob Newhart's stammer. Yeah. Uh, I know a couple comics who stammer is their secret power, but they didn't do it when they first started. I've known them that long. Okay. They developed it because it worked for the material and it supported it. And so that was the, the, the universe that they Jerusalem that they constructed there. Um, Oscar Wilde said, your weaknesses are your strengths. I had a very close friend years ago say, you should work on your voice. And I was like, fuck you. Every gig I've ever got is because I sound like this. I don't get a lot of gigs, but I've had three or four really awesome gigs, including uh, Phantom Menace and all the video games as a pod racer. Bob the Builder, uh, for God, five, six years, that was, they used to fly us to London. Dude, it was the sweetest. They'd fly us to London. And we'd go to Soho. There was a cafe around the corner called Bar Italia. I'd get um, an espresso, right? I'd have an espresso. Then I'd go to the gig. And then at lunch, we'd break and have Indian food or Chinese food. They'd bring the menus in. You know, what do you want? Anything you like, you know. Right. Just, you know, you know, do you want more? Don't we? So the center runner out. We'd bring it back. And so then the curry would come and we'd all talk about Steely Dan for like an hour. <laughs> then we'd go back. And it was just great. It was great. And this is what Americans are like. Americans would go to me. Why don't you just record it in LA? Down the-? And I go, <laughs> Shut your mouth. <laughs> I had four or five years of flying over. It was oh, that's great. great. So I'm sorry. My cat is going to say hello now. Hi. <laughs> that's I, the biggest cat in the world. He just looks it. you came to Sacramento and held Norm, the biggest cat in the world. Norm. Yeah. I, I, no, this is not him. This is Marmalade. Different cat. Oh, good. 
<laughs> um, I remember Norm quite well. I want to get the, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Let me say one last thing about oh, voice please. gigs. Um, people recognize you for your voice. Uh, I have a. I know how I sound, but like if I changed it, it wouldn't work. I think. Um, and uh, I got a Nightmare Before Christmas uh, in 1992 or whatever. Then we sh- then it came out in like 1993. And about five six years ago, Danny Elfman. Yeah. wanted to do it as a live gig with a full orchestra. So we did it the last bunch of years, New York, Hollywood Bowl. We did it in Tokyo, Glasgow, Dublin, and London last year. And wow. Me with my voice, and I don't, um, everyone else is a professional singer. They can read music, like they can sight read. So like, you know, they don't need any direction. They're all brilliant singers. And I'm just me. And uh, I'm next to the conductor and he, sings with me and he's right in front of me so what, the way i'm looming keep you on it's the great and that's why i'm never ever voting for a republican again the rest of my life because we were supposed to do it this year at the hollywood Bowl, uh, and they've taken our lives away man with their fucking yeah traitorous russian bullshit uh well i am uh an oingo boingo fan so i go way back oh. with danny Elfman. my first concert that i ever went to without my parents was to see Oingo Boingo at the Kaiser J Memorial Auditorium. Uh, and to this day, it. one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. So Sure. Um, you know the song he would do sometimes at the bowl was... Um, I was struck by lightning. What was that one? I was struck by lightning afraid. last night in my sleep. I'm not going to sing. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't be afraid. It's only me. Yes. That was the big finale. And people go crazy because... You know, down here in Los Angeles, there's like a K-Rock flashback yeah. Friday or whatever, right? Because that song, everybody goes, oh, not that one. I love that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I did want to ask you about Nightmare Before Christmas Live. Uh, will we? Are there plans right now? Or are you guys holding off to see where the pandemic goes? Oh, no. there's a, I, there's, I don't see anything happening this year that, with it. I would hope next year. I know Danny really wanted to do it. The last time I saw him, we were having a drink in... Uh, London? No, I was having a drink with him in Dublin was the thing. And, um, you know, he just kills it on the road. Also, dude, Catherine O'Hara came with us, you know? Okay. I mean, she gets up and sings Sally. And Ken oh, that's Page great. does Oogie Boogie. He gets up and does Oogie Boogie. Like, it's crazy. Like, and it's a full orchestra. So I'm in front of, like, the second, uh, uh, the first strings. It's a, so, hum, hum, it's right through your chest man oh that's amazing the bells and stuff in the back it was just and we did it in japan and it was an earthquake when we were rehearsal and nobody said anything and the whole place started shaking and we all looked at each other and the interpreter goes like this which is fantastic (laughs) (laughs) and you know we're all from california man like anyone in california like like, yeah i know this right yeah 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 well like uh, go ahead please well, so the, they didn't say nothing to us. Like the people who ran the venue, this great big concert venue, um, and nothing, not a word. And the orchestra filed off, the chorus filed off, we filed <laughs> off. Then I went over to John Mauchery, our, 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 the maestro, who was studied under Bernstein. It was a protege of Bernstein. I'm not kidding. And calls Bernstein in conversation, Lenny. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know anybody the, called him Lenny. The, wonder, the wonderful thing about Lenny was he had such a... <laughs> Marvelous sense of humor. I go to Maestro, did you feel the earthquake? And he goes, no. <laughs> Just don't acknowledge yeah. that it doesn't exist. Um, he, you know, he's indefatigable. He's left one of our gigs and his assistant did Dublin, his protege did Dublin. And he went to Scotland to do an original piece of music with Alan Cumming. The, the Scottish actor. So okay. he did that and then flew back and then we did Wembley arena for two nights. <laughs> so it was like quite a life. And he's, it, I, yeah, life was great. Yeah. I remember <laughs> life. Hopefully it comes back someday. Let's see if there's an afterlife. Uh, you got, uh, honey, it's coming back. It's coming back. Yes. It's coming back. It's I, coming I am back. 100% committed. I will be voting yeah. Biden Harris. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, Landslide. Uh, before I let you go, I, uh, we did promise the fans oh. that they would get a chance to ask some oh, questions. Say, so please, I want to get please. into those. Um, yes, 
The first fan question I got was, is this at 7 p.m. Pacific time or Eastern time? You want to take that one, Greg? Yeah, I think this is um, Antarctic time. It's, just, okay. it's in a, it, you know, below the equator. Time's really just a concept anyway. Right, invented by white people. Right. Ruin everyone's life. We're not going to put up without oppression here. So right. next question. I don't know if you can hear, but my cat has just gone full. Yeah, I have. He, kn- he knows I'm doing something and right, he, wants attention. he will stop it anyway he can. No, he won't. Here's a question uh, that may make sense to you. When was the last time that you mixed Strawberry Quick and Coke? I feel like this is code. Like this is your dealer trying to ask me in a public forum if they should come by. It is. Um, I uh, interviewed John C. Riley many times. or We're, we're friends. And uh, he told me he was in the movie Hoffa with uh, Jack Nicholson. That Jack Nicholson's gang of old guys that surrounded him, his posse, um, had code words. So they'd say things like, I need a Coke with strawberry quick. And he'd go, ah. and he'd say, I need a Coke with strawberry quick. <laughs> and they'd, somehow, whatever it was he wanted would, you know what I mean? Right. So I'm going to say yes to that. Uh, I, I could Coke with strawberry quick. Um, it's been a while since I've done it, but I'm fixing to do it again. And when I do, watch out. Bring the Pony Express. This seems like the time for it. Right. For experimenting and re-upping. Um, all right. Here's another here's a sartorial question. Uh, you always look fresh. Uh, how does an aspiring dandy build a smart look on a pandemic budget? And how much can question. be derived from attitude versus attire? You have great well, fans. I, I don't know who else gets questions like that, Greg. I do. I'm weepingly, eternally grateful for the people that follow me. And because of the times we live in since uh, Hillary lost, um, yes. they've winnowed themselves out. All the douchebags have actually physically winnowed themselves out of my fandom. I've increased with uh, all the people that I want to connect with. I really have. And I, I think it's beautiful. I, comedy doesn't usually find its own level in the water. But I think I did. And I, right. I was through no doing because I made no plan at all. And I'm a terrible business person and I have no ambition, as you <laughs> might have noticed during the show. To answer your question, my darling, um, <laughs> you don't need money at all. Uh, I did thrift store chic all through my 20s. And I had a group uh, that I was in. I said fault line. And that was 85 and 86 in San Francisco. So it was, you know, tuxedo jackets we found for $5. Yeah. And uh, uh, O-rings like Madonna went on. Um, undone suspenders, big hair, you know, and I think you can work that area. Now, when you want to build it up a little bit, and I don't want anyone to get on my dick for saying this because it's so <laughs> true. All the stores, the chain stores like Banana Republic and uh, uh, um, what's the other one that's just like Banana Republic, but it has a fancier Old name. Old Navy the, Gap. Yeah, that kind of shit. Okay. That, the Gap. Like I used to, this is a, a, a Banana Republic shirt. Okay. I used to wear $400 like Gucci and uh, uh, Prada shirts. I bought these designer clothes. This is a, some time ago, 20 years ago. I, I had a wild budget and I spent all this money. And then you'd wear it on stage and you'd have it washed or have it cleaned or whatever. And then after three things, it's dead. Right. This tough, durable fucking shirt is like 40 bucks or whatever. You know? <laughs> now, this is a special treat. This is from Lansky's in Memphis, which is where Elvis got all his clothes. Nice. So I'll give you a good look at the kind of animal pattern we're talking about here. Yeah, that's both, As you can see, it's tiger, it's leopard, and it's ocelot. It's like all the – they've meshed it together. And by the way, this is made of polyester. There, if I lit a match near this – also, this you've lit several matches near it while we've been talking. Right? Is a pull is a pull up um, is a pull up handkerchief. Nice. I said to him, "I need a, a pocket handkerchief." And he went, "No, you don't, mate." And I was like, "Oh." <laughs> so the, the lame jacket was there from a million Elvis fans can't be wrong, and the shoes had no taste boundaries. The shoes were just the shoes were shocking at Lansky's, and. He did also the race car era of Elvis, which isn't a great one for me, but it's, you know, the, the windbreakers with the zips and the, the you know, the high-waisted white trail. So I would go to the cheap shit stores. And then for a suit like Theory, or there's another chain that I can't think of the name of, but um, don't spend like loads of money on a suit. Right. Here's how you do it. Get a suit that fits. 
And that's all that matters. If you're fat or thin, if you're thin, awesome. Keep it tight here and here. You want shoulders and you want to shape your man. You want a silhouette. You don't want to look like 45 does, right? Like 45 looks like a bloated, like something's being poured into him. Right. With that odd lean. Never, never want your pants too long. Never want your tie too long. Keep the tie on the thinner side. Make, it, 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 even if you're big, make the clothes fit. You don't, don't wear something loose because you think it makes you look thinner. It doesn't. So there's that. Black is good, but here's the best thing of all. Do a blue, unless you're a brown-skinned or, or dark-skinned person, in which case you can wear bright, bright colors like orange and you know powder blue and yellow. Uh, if you're a regular white guy with our coloring, you have to go blue, navy blue, whatnot. And then maybe a bright tie or a bright pocket square or bright socks, you know, like go like try to do it that way. Um, I never don't wear a suit on stage because yeah. if I do, it's only because it's too hot and I have to just wear a sport coat. On the, but I just I just haven't for ages and it's made me feel a lot better. I always say to people like, it's my armor, man. You're taken seriously as an adult when you wear a suit. Yeah. You have all this authority when you're a suit. <laughs> and all the great comedians, Bob Newhart, <clears throat> uh, John Coltrane. Yeah. Uh, Marlena Dietrich. You know, it's funny. We were talking about Mort Saul earlier and not Sweater. wearing a suit. That was, that was this his big head. deal at that time. Yeah. And my yep. favorite interview I ever heard with him, they said, why the sweater? Like, how did that come to be? Mm-hmm. And he said that him and his jazz musician roommate shared a suit. And one night, his roommate had a gig and took right. the suit. Took the suit. So he went in the sweater and someone wrote about it in the paper. And he's like, oh, I guess I got to wear that from now on. <laughs> you know? I yeah. love that. That big trademark was, it was his turn to wear the suit. Right? Isn't that great? That's so but everything happens, you know, I don't want to say everything happens for a reason. That's an awful thing to say, but um, so many artistic choices that are important to your career are things that are random. Yeah. And that's another thing about accepting. You talked about improv. What's really important in your life is to accept the random things that happen to you and don't fuck them up. I, I had a bunch of lucky things happen to me. I, I was lucky enough to say yes to some and probably blew a few others. Yeah. And you know, but it's like, you know, uh, I never thought whose line was going to be this thing that went on till the end of time. Right. It just went like, on. 30 years? Uh, 30 years, dude. It's like, I, I was 29. I was like, okay, I've been on the road for a long time. I've been doing comedy for since I was 18, you know. Yeah. And there's nothing else like it. There's, there's several different sketch shows over the years that have been great, you know, from Monty Python, Kids in the Hall, Saturday Night Live. Is there anything else in improv that has worked like that? I mean, it's quite singular. There's been a lot of uh, improv shows. You know, we did a crap one called Improvaganza. There was. Uh, but anything this, that had legs called, like that? No. Yeah. It's the. It's also like, um, like you say, it, it takes things take on a life of their own that is not like you're doing, and every high school and college group in the country for the long time has used our tapes and it's the show that they because just because we're the show that does the thing that they want to do the thing that i learned from the kids in 1979 from a book called improvisation for the actor by viola spolin okay and then later another book called impro by keith johnstone those were kind of the books that we looked at because they were talking about improv as a way to express yourself and a way to expand your vocabulary on stage of course it's a job right it's been here's the crazy thing man like people hate comics hate improvisers in general and improvisers are <laughs> suspicious of comedians it's and it's for all the right thing. reasons right you know, <laughs> comics think that improvisers are just shit because they don't write anything right and improvisers think comics are assholes because they're completely self-interested right you know? and both things are true uh, but <laughs> there's as a stand-up comic, I'm whatever I'm who I am. I am who I am. But as an improviser, I'm in the top 5% of all famous improvisers Yeah, because, because I've been on the show for 30 years. Right. And 
that was now doing a mine. I didn't make that, you know, up. yeah, okay, I did my part. Oh, come on, uh, you get you get credit for being real good at it. <laughs> well, <laughs> certainly. But I, can... I, I've certainly persisted at it. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that's the weird part. And so that's the lucky part. So we are we are coming up on the time that they allotted me, and there's something that I have to ask you about that I can't let you go without asking you about. And And I'm hoping... That your answer is not just going to be, oh, I was never a fan. What was it like for you to get to be a part of the Star Wars universe? Oh, it was amazing. Uh, Good. George Lucas, George, <laughs> uh, was uh, there on the set. We shot it in Leavesden, uh, outside of London. Had a car driver uh, who was really cool. And uh, Scott Capurro from San Francisco yes. was the other Padres announcer. Scott's fantastic. So, Anyone who's not familiar with him should check him out. He's the one who speaks in Hatties. We got on the set. And uh, we we had had hours of makeup to put these giant heads on that they CGI'd right off. So yeah, I didn't realize you guys. I, I thought it was all CGI. No, it, we we went in the shop a week before, had models made of our heads, which in those days required you having straws up your nose and a plaster Paris thing on your head for several hours. Right. Oh wow. Then we came back for makeup in the day, and the makeup took three or four hours to apply because it was this elaborate. You can see it online. It's, okay. I'm red and he's green and we've got giant headphones on and giant wooden, like uh, almost like a Scandinavian uh, uh, sound system headphones from the early 80s. Oh, like, is... like light hardwood. Yeah, yeah. And uh, like you're they're Danish modern, you know. And um, <laughs> then they CGI'd all that up. So George came up to us and he said, um, do you guys, um, do you guys want to have you seen the pod race? And I said, <laughs> are we running out of time? Do I, how much time? Am I oh, we're great. Yeah, I said, I said, George, we, no one's seen it. We had, we sworn secrecy. He's like, do you want to, do you want to watch it? Said, yeah, we, we'd, adore to, we'd adore to watch it, George. So he showed it to us. So I'm wearing a giant head. So I have no glasses. So my eyesight, my, it's better now. I've had it. Uh, my um, so I took my glasses off and I right but you know so we watched yeah, it yeah. and it was just sketches and 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 some animation it wasn't okay. a finished pod race and with crappy voiceovers thrown on by technicians right and that was that so then we stood on a stage and he go uh, look right look left look left we do the lines and then he go come walking up there's about hundred people on the sound stage. That was really good. You want to do it again? <laughs> and I go, we'd love to, George, man. It'd be great. And you go, okay. And walk back. And that was what happened. End of the day, we met Ewan McGregor. Okay. He was shooting second, he was shooting second unit stuff with Frank Oz on the second unit. Okay. We were on first unit. First unit. George Lucas. Congratulations. And, yeah, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, the second AD was taking us back and uh, Scott goes, I'm going to get some swag, right? And he turns to the second AD and he says, um, is there any swag, you know? And he goes, I'm going right here. We'll be right back. Just right around right. Runs on. Fucks off. Comes back. Two polar fleeces that say, and this is for my Star Wars nerds, episode one. Nice. They don't say Phantom Menace. Right. They say episode one don't come to my house don't kill me <laughs> have you i possess a polar fleece that says star wars episode one have you made arrangements in your will for what will happen to this fleece oh it's gonna go to black lives matter i'm, I'm pretty much i'm pretty <laughs> sure about that I, I did my first star wars convention last year that's how good my year was last year and uh it was in Chicago, and it was just the funnest thing. And I'd never been before, and I didn't realize how insane it was. How it was like the Grateful Dead makes the Olympics and shit. All right. Yeah, I've, I've never it been. Was scary. That sounds oh, dude, amazing. It was, and it was in Chicago, so like it was you know big, and there were people who had come that were dressed in authentic stuff, including like the robot from Metropolis. And, I mean, like it was a uh, wild. It was, yeah, there was remote shit. And these weren't, like, there were people who were working there. The people who played all the parts in all the movies and various cartoons and shit were pretty cash. Yeah. I, of course, put a suit and tie on because... That's what you do. 
that's what I do. <laughs> but that was a fun day. Uh, to answer your question, I, I have nothing to add to say about it. And I've done a thousand video games and uh, cartoons and all that nonsense off the back of it. And why not be in something that literally everyone liked? Well, and <laughs> <laughs> I'm in so many things that people hated. It's like, well, so I, so I have to ask, what was it like to be part of something that was so beloved and then had such a crazy backlash with the whole Jar Jar thing and everything else? Well, it didn't bother me at all. Good. Was, uh, my wife and I went to see the movie and, uh, uh, when it came out. And uh, in San Francisco, I think we still lived in San Francisco then. And uh, I think we missed part of it. And then we left okay. before it was over. It was like, you know, <laughs> I was just happy that – here, I'll tell you something funny. I went to audition for it, and they made me an offer, and Scott too. And my agent in England said, oh, I don't know about this. Really? <laughs> and I said, uh, uh, in America, it's a resume. In England, it's a CV. It means curriculum vitae in Latin. It, it just means resume. <laughs> she goes, I don't know about this. And I go, it goes at the top of my CV. Yes, how did she not Star realize that? Wars. Right. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. <laughs> um, so it was that that's what I mean. And it's like Kirk Ward or Kirk Fox said it to me once, uh, a comedian. He said, A manager is someone who gets you two thousand dollars for a thousand dollar gig. Right. That's what you need. <laughs> <laughs> uh Craig, it was, it was delightful talking to you, and, and I'll close out by saying this. I've worked with a lot of comics over the years, and you were one of the people I was top of my list to talk to for this when they said they were going to be doing it. Because in addition Cheers to being to very funny on stage, you were so nice to work with. You were just, What a great week we had. You came and yeah. hung out in our house and held the cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a blast. And, we, and this we did was the podcast also, and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And this was also a blast getting to chat with you again. I hope that things get close enough to normal that we're able to share a stage again soon. And what I, my life's purpose now is to see uh, Nightmare Before Christmas live. That's got to happen. Your lips to God's ear, baby. All right. I'm going to, I'm an Thanks, Keith. I'm a devout atheist. I'm going to start praying for that every night before I go to bed. I'm going to do it. Nothing wrong with prayer at all. Thank you so much, Greg. Love you. Thanks, you guys. Love Bye. you, too. Talk to you soon. Okay. Yeah, that was fun. I uh, can't wait to talk with Greg again, which I'm sure we will do soon. Because one thing about Greg Proops, that guy is always down. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I've been your host, Keith Lowell Jensen. My producer is Joe Honor. Uh, Joe also did the art for the podcast. Our editor, audio engineer, is Jack Matrenga. And Joe and Jack are both with Hyperpixel. Hyperpixel is a production company with a focus on digital marketing and e-commerce, offering daily management of your website, social media accounts, and digital marketing campaigns. Uh, they do good work. The music for the show was done by DJ Real. Nice original song there. Thank you, DJ Real. Tune in next week. It's happening at last. I'm so excited. We've got Wendy and Richard Pinney of ElfQuest. Coming up soon after that, we're going to have Jay Tholen, an independent video game designer, creator of Dropsy the Clown, and uh, also another of my favorite comic book writer, authors, Jeffrey Brown, best known for Vader's Little Princess, Jedi Academy, and my favorite, Clumsy. Uh, remember to head over to Amazon Prime and check out Not For Rehire by me, Keith Lowell Jensen. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Keith Lowell. And follow the podcast at KLJ Podcast. Also remember to subscribe, rate us, write a review. It really helps. Thank you so much. Talk to you next week. Mwah.